Welcome to Curious and Candid, conversations with those in pursuit of more. Today's guest is Julie Shobe. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Quentin, for having me. You're you're very welcome, Julie. So um, looking forward to chopping it up with you, uh, kind of learning more about uh, your story and uh, who Julie's uh, all about and what you're up to current day. But before we get into all of that, Julie, I would like to know, um, how do you start your day? Do you have any specific routine or ritual that you like to stick to on most mornings and on most days? I knew you were going to ask this question and I feel a little sheepish about it. Um, this is an area in my life I would love to get more um, specific and intentional with, but I, 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 I'm just not. Um, <laughs> so I have uh, a daughter that just turned one and then I have a five-year-old. And um, so just coming out of that infant year, uh, you know, you never really know what sleep's going to look like and you never really know what what's on the table for you throughout the night and then in the morning. And um, my first daughter, man, we could count on consistent sleep. Uh, she was the best sleeper. And then my second daughter, she, I, I don't think she's as bad as, you know, some people experience, but it's been fairly consistent, not getting consistent sleep. So anyway, there's my excuse for the fact that I don't have a great morning routine because oftentimes I am like waiting to stay in bed as long as I possibly can, um, just to go up those few extra minutes of sleep. Um, but one thing that is very consistent is I do enjoy coffee. And um, so I I really like to have coffee and sometimes it's just a half of a cup, but that is like so worth it. And I have heavy cream. I'm like a heavy cream and black coffee. And then I have a little hand frother and that just like brings me a lot of joy in the morning. So that is like my one consistent thing that I have in the Love morning. It. Love it. It's 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 called curious and candid so you're being candid thank you and uh it's also real life right so we're we're getting yeah. we're getting all the good things here so um now let me ask you so you got your your young kids you've got the coffee if if you could just insert uh okay so we got the coffee why don't you give me two other things that if you could consistently do these two things to kind of kickstart your day maybe it doesn't have to be as soon as you roll out of bed but what are a couple of things that you would like to at some point implement if and when uh, you you can and could? I love working out in the morning. So um, that when my children are older, I, I believe that will be something that I will go back to doing pretty consistently in the morning. Um, I Yeah, so getting a workout in, whether that's, and I do both weightlifting and running, with my business. Um, so, uh, yeah, so just one of those two things, most mornings, uh, would be really, really nice. I obviously believe in rest days too. Um, and then a second thing would be something that I've never been able to implement in my life, but I've always had a desire to, and I probably could do some work here, um, is just having some moment of quiet time, um, just to be, be <laughs> um and like sit and observe and um that would be really really nice to implement and be in candid I've never been able to do that um 
in my life, but it is a desire. Okay. Very, very, very well. Love it. Okay. So, um, what, uh, Julie is a favorite book that you have kind of like all time or maybe most impactful book uh, or a book that you like to gift often. And then if you do listen to podcasts or consume podcasts, is there a kind of like a favorite one or one that you, uh, kind of go to if you're going to uh, have that time to listen to a podcast? Yes. Um, this is a good question. So right now I'm very invested in, and building my business and growing my business. So I do listen to a decent amount of like business podcasts. So, um, that are specific to dietitians. So, um, the Sarah Hall show is one that I listen to on a regular basis and dietitian boss is the other one. And I've hired both of those individuals um, to help me with business coaching. So I, I like a lot what they have to say. And so I will listen to their podcasts on a pretty regular basis. Um, when it comes to books, I'm trying, I listen to audiobooks. I've uh, in my adult years, I've realized I have dyslexia. So I reading is, has always been really a struggle for me. And um I realized that I do a lot better when I listen. And that was even a learning curve for me. So I'm trying to, um, hmm, I wonder if I could pull up my Audible because I feel like I've listened to some that have been really good um, lately. Yeah, take take your time. I If you got some good ones, I that's why I asked the question. So. <laughs> oh, okay. So, um. I love The Office, <laughs> the show The Office, and um, the Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsley have a have a podcast called The Office Ladies that I also listen to pretty religiously. I actually listen to it before I go to sleep because I really enjoy laughing uh, to put me to sleep. And they have a book called Office BFFs or something. I just saw it on here and then I lost it. Um, so if you're, if you're a fan of The Office, then I really, I really liked that book. And then, um, I just came across one that I really, really, really loved here, here, I'll name two more. I um, mean, it's been a while since I've listened to these, um, but Bravey by Alexi Pappas, um, she's a Olympic marathoner and I think she's run some other distances. I I loved her book, Bravey. I think I actually re-download it and listen to it now that I reminded myself about it right in this conversation. And then um, Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. I also thought was a very impactful book and it's been a while since I've listened to that. So um, I'm glad I pulled that. Oh, and then right now I'm listening to Orange is the New Black, hmm. um, which I also have enjoyed that book. Cool. Okay, now... You said that uh, in adulthood, you found out that uh, you have dyslexia. Um, how did that come come about in adulthood? Because usually that's caught when you're younger. Uh, if, if I mean, I guess is kind of what I thought, but can you touch on that, please? Yeah, I think that um, my parents did a good job no, like they noticed that I had a hard time learning and reading and they got me a tutor in elementary school um, that I had for probably a year, like maybe in second grade or something. 
Um, I don't have a ton of good memory around what happened or, you know, why I didn't continue to get tutoring. Um, I don't know. I was a, I was a very good student in growing up. I always got A's and I always did my homework. And so you wouldn't, I masked it pretty well. And I don't think I also felt very, I felt ashamed that like it was something that I struggled with. Um, and then also too, if you like, if you can turn in your homework and still get good grades, then like, why would you dig into it deeper? Right. So, uh, um, but I knew like deep down, it was like a secret that I had, like, oh man, reading is really hard for me. Like in college, I like rarely read my textbooks. Like, you know how you get assigned to read chapters and chapters. And I, like, I couldn't really do it. And so, um, and same thing in college, I somehow was able to get through college and, um, still get good grades and, you know, pass all my classes and all this stuff. So, um, it was when I got married to my husband, uh, like, I think I mentioned it, we've been married for 12 years this August, we're coming up on our anniversary and it was probably at the beginning of my marriage. I think I did say to him, I think I have dyslexia or like a learning disability. And he, uh, he is a wonderful man. <laughs> and we both have grown a lot since our marriage, uh, since the beginning of our marriage. But his response was, no, you don't. And then like, just like closed the conversation down, which felt very symbolic of how it felt to me in my whole life. Right. Um, and then it wasn't until probably, oh, two, two or yeah, it was, it was fairly recently, probably two years ago that um, we have, it's actually my daughter's preschool teacher <laughs> that is dyslexic as well. And she is very open about, you know, how she like misspells things or like can't quite find the right word or will mix up words when she's talking or that reading is difficult for her. And I was just like, yeah, that same thing happens to me. Like, and I've always thought I was dyslexic. And she's like, yeah, you probably are. So in, in uh, all honesty, it's a self-diagnosed dyslexia. But um, and then so finally, one day my husband was talking to this the preschool teacher and they were talking about dyslexia because she was joking about it. And then, then they, I wasn't there when this happened, but they both were like, this same thing happens to Julie. And, uh, and so, and so I think it took just my husband, Justin, like having a conversation with somebody else. And then also like realizing like, oh, this is an actual thing. So then he came to me and he's like, yeah, it was just one day. He's like, you know, and it was out of the blue. He was like, you know, I really do think you have dyslexia. And I was like, <laughs> thanks. And then like immediate crying, like just val like feeling validated. And so um, there are things that you can do uh, with, I believe it's occupational therapists or speech therapy. I don't remember which one. It's one of the two, um, one of those two professions. And it is something I would like to actually when I have the time, when my kids are older, actually go and do like get, because I guess there are like tons of different types of dyslexia and there are things and exercises that you can do to help them. So um, it is on my list of things that I want to pursue for just like self growth and 
you know, development there. But uh, I finally got the validation that uh, from, you know, somebody close in my life that like, oh, yeah, like, I see that this is something you struggle with. <laughs> now, now, you mentioned, uh, I want to, I want to just pull back one more layer, and then we'll move on. But um, now you mentioned shame is still like, uh, you know, if, you, if you're being candid right now, uh, is there still like some shame or uneasiness, even like when you say that you have dyslexia out loud, or are you completely kind of free from all of that? I wouldn't say that I'm completely free from it. I feel like I've become a lot more secure in, um, in saying it. Uh, and, uh, if I'm being honest, I am like, I can function like very highly. Um, so I think there is a layer there that, is like a protective layer. Like I'm able to say like, Hey, I have this learning disability, but look at like, I still can, you know, I can still perform and I can still, um, offer, you know, high level, um, information and, and still be able to function at a higher level. So yes, there is some, there is some shame there, but there's also like, uh, a level of security that I feel, and I think also just getting that validation that I finally like was seeking from specifically somebody that is like very, I'm very close to now that I have that is just like, yeah, it makes me feel a lot more secure and like comfortable with talking about it with people. But yeah, I actually just brought it up um, on a hike with uh, some girlfriends the other day and they both were like, wait, what? Like they, like they didn't. They were so surprised yeah. and I was like, yeah, I can't, like, I haven't told you this. Like, cause I thought I had, yeah. you know, I felt like more secure in it. Like I felt like I had like told everyone I knew I thought I had dyslexia or that I have dyslexia, but um, they didn't know. And they were fascinated by it too. So. Right. But. Cool. I appreciate you touch on that, Julie. All right. Now um, in recent times uh, kind of within the last year or, be a little bit longer, but I'm, I'm sure you'll probably got something within the last year, or maybe the last day being a, being a mom of young kids, but what's a life lesson uh, that you've been taught or you've learned within the last year or within recent times? Yeah, it's in the name of your podcast um, to be curious. Ah. So um, I think that growing up, uh, I, I come from a, a wonderful family, um, but curiosity was something that wasn't, that, like, there's a level, I don't want to like, hmm, uh, uh, there's a certain level of curiosity, but then there's other things in life that I wasn't taught to be curious about. And, um, you know, you could, you're curious about like history and asking more questions there, but like, if it's something related to something that we don't, you know, growing up, we didn't know a whole lot about, it would just be like, it's interesting, or that's weird. And then like, move on. Or if it was about somebody that we didn't really know or understand their background or whatever, it's like, hmm, I wonder why they did that. And then it would just like end there. It wasn't actually like, no, let's like actually go ask that person, like, where did this come from? Or you know, what's your background? Why do you have this belief or, or like, you know, or it could be something scientific, like 
scientific, like wonder why that actually happens. Like what, what is actually happening behind the scenes? So, um, that has been a lesson that I've learned in adulthood, um, just to be more curious and approach situ situations with curiosity. And I feel like that's been, um, allowed me to uh, learn more things and it's allowed me to understand more things. Um, so, yeah. So what was, uh, as an adult then, what was kind of the spark, Julie, for you to uh, dive deeper into uh, curiosity? Probably a mixture of my husband is a very curious person um, and was taught to be. And we also go to a um, a church and the pastor that was at our church, who's not no longer there anymore, but he um, he really spoke about being curious. Um, and I'm trying to remember if there was like a specific time or I just think like a lot of that came from him. Um, so yeah, probably a mixture of those two people. Okay. So, so how does your, uh, what's your husband's name? Justin. Justin. Okay. So how does, how does your husband, Justin, uh, you know, show his curiosity or how, how did you kind of when you guys were, were dating or early in marriage, how did you kind of recognize like, Hey, Justin is a very curious person. And this is something maybe that I'm not, or not on this level. Like you mentioned, like how does he express that curiosity that differed from you? Maybe when you were early in your guys' relationship. Yeah. He just asks more questions. <laughs> like, and I, I just wouldn't like, it would just be like, okay, like you hear something and then you're just like, all right, that's cool. That's interesting. Mm. Like, and then it just ends there. And he, he would uh, consistently ask more questions. And I see it in his dad and his mom. Um, they are also quite curious people. Um, so it's neat to see how that trait was passed down mm. through um, them to him. So, yeah. And I'm assuming that you are trying to teach your kids, although they're very young, but you are trying or going to try to implement and teach them curiosity, I'm assuming, because it sounds like it's something that you you value now in, in your adult life. Yes, it is. And I do. Um, have you heard of the uh, like growth and fixed mindset? Have you heard of that concept? Uh, just a second. The, the, the current book, and, and this is going to be just an audio podcast, but you and I are on a Zoom call right now. So this is my, my, yeah, book. Yep. my, my current reading. So yes, I have. I, 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 I've heard about those concepts for a long time, but just like all the other kind of like self-help and self-improvement, all the things out there, it's like you can only eat and consume so much of the content at a time, yeah. but uh, I'm going back into teaching, like I told you uh, before we jumped on the recording here. And I was like, you know what? I've had this book for a long time. I'm going to read it. I'm almost done with it. Very powerful. So 
So yes, I have and finish your point. Sorry. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I should bring up that that I read that book probably six or seven years ago. And um, that probably was also a breaking point for me to become more curious. I, uh, so yeah, um, was reading, I listened to that book. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, I did not read it. <laughs> um, but that was groundbreaking to realize that my upbringing was a lot of fixed mindset. And um you know, you get those messages through a lot of people growing up, right? Not just your parents. There's a lot of other people that you can get that messaging from. Um, and so, yeah, so that was, that book was groundbreaking to me to realize like, wow, I can actually, like, I don't have to be like good or bad at something. I can actually get better and learn more about something. So even back to your original point with my children, so with my five-year-old, like I, we really try and stay away from terminology like you're so smart. Um, like instead, because that's what I heard a lot growing up, <laughs> which like you think is a great thing to tell somebody, right? But like it actually ended up being a little bit more harmful to me because if I didn't know something, I felt dumb and I didn't know that I could get better or learn it. Um, And then I felt ashamed back to your point about not knowing it um, about the earlier question. So now with my five-year-old, we try and be like, oh, you're so adventuresome. You really enjoy learning. Like um, this is so like, you know, what a fun thing to learn about and know more about, um, or you're so curious. So we try and use terminology like that rather than the, uh, yeah, you're so like, you're so smart or you're so good at this or, you know, which still does occasionally come out of my mouth. And I don't think it's bad, but, um, but just, as, just being aware of, you know, that's where a lot of things start, right. Is just being aware of, of things and terminology. So, but yes, that book was revolutionary for me. Awesome. That, that, is, that is super cool. Cause it's been, a have read a lot of books and, uh, it's, it's one of the best ones I've ever read in terms of just like, not just like learning information, but, but, information that you can practically implement right right away and uh it's going to impact you in every aspect of your life so uh very cool okay uh julie last uh question in terms of kind of the conversational starter questions then we're gonna uh dig into your backstory a little bit more do you have a favorite quote mantra or word oh yeah there's um it's a brene brown quote i actually think i have it today i choose courage over comfort. Um, I think that's a Brene Brown quote. Um, and so I really like that. And then I really like, it's not really a quote, but it's more of like a concept that I like to think of. That's also Brene Brown. Can I swear on your podcast? Is that okay? It's curious and candid. You just be you. <laughs> she talks about, um, having shitty first drafts and just being okay with a shitty first draft. And, um, so that also just like goes into the, all of what we've just talked about, but, um, but yeah, just being okay with like starting something and realizing that it's going to improve over time. Mm. So, yeah. What, what was the first Brene Brown quote that you uh, mentioned to us? Uh, today I choose courage over comfort. Cool. All right.
Okay, so um, Julie, we're going to kind of transition into uh, uh, your backstory at this point. Okay, so uh, I I kind of want you to share, if you don't mind, where you like actually physically grew up, and then paint the picture for us of your childhood, your upbringing. Um, you know, you kind of mentioned academics a little bit, but uh, you know, did you play sports? Are you an only child? Do you have siblings? What was your relationship with your parents like? Just kind of walk us up to high school. You can talk about high school and then stop there because I've got some questions that kind of transition us uh, into kind of the, the next phase of your life after high school. Oof, yeah, that sounds like a lot, but okay, here we go. Um, you're an Iowa boy. I'm a Minnesota girl. So I grew up in um, Stillwater, Minnesota. Yeah, or well, yeah, we moved there when I was in kindergarten. That's where most of my memories start. I should just put it that way. <laughs> um, so, um, but yes, I was born in Minnesota. I have an older sister. Uh, we're four and a half years apart. Um, my dad has always been a working businessman, um, very successful. And my mom has always, uh, Ever since my sister and I were born, she's stayed home as a stay-at-home mom and has always, always, always been there. Uh, no matter what we need, she is that she takes uh, that very seriously. Like she's very loyal <laughs> um, and amazing that way. So, um, yeah, so we, uh, yeah, I grew up, let's see here, sports. Um, I, all of the girls in my experience, extended family. All my cousins were swimmers. I was the only one that wasn't a swimmer and that I, um, instead I went down the soccer path and, um, what else did I do? This is mainly soccer for soccer was my big sport, like through high school. Um, and I actually quit soccer. Oh, I think it was like my senior, maybe my junior senior year of high school. It was a bummer. Um, I quit because I didn't, I didn't enjoy uh, the um, environment on the team uh, with the girls that I played with, which was really unfortunate because I loved the game. And then also I got burned out. Um, I, my parents, you know, I got into playing soccer probably as like a kindergartner and then got into traveling soccer. And, um, you know, for a kid, as a kid, we were pretty good soccer players and, uh, and a pretty good soccer team. And, um, I would play pretty much year round, uh, you know, probably starting in like the junior high years. Um, and it just, it got to be too, it got to be too much to the point where I didn't enjoy it anymore. So then I flat out quit, um, which was, like I said, which was unfortunate. Cause I do feel like if maybe there was like a little bit better balance there, it probably probably had a chance of getting like some kind of scholarship to go play at a college or something. So, um, so yeah, that's like, that's that up and through high school, but in high school, when I, uh, I also played, uh, or I also did track, um, and I was a long and triple jumper in track and I loved long and triple jump. It was so fun. And somehow I got away with not having to run. So I'd only do the like field part and not the track part, um, which was great. My, I don't know why. Yeah. My coaches were always like, yeah, if you don't want to run, you can just jump. And I was a great jumper on the team and got to be captain. And so that was fun. Um, so yeah, long and triple jump were a big part of my life, especially when I quit soccer. 
Um, and let's see, uh, church was a very big part of my life growing up as well. We went to, um, like a very evangelical, uh, type church and I had lots of close friends, um, from church and, um, yeah, so that was, that was a big part of my bringing as well. Okay. All right. Now, First of all, so I'm currently in Iowa and this is where I was born and raised. So kind of got the, we got the commonality of of the Midwest going on here. Now you said Stillwater, Minnesota, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now where's that at? Is that like by the cities or where, where, where at in Minnesota is is that specifically? It's right on the border of um, uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin. So it's, uh, if you, it's Northeast of St. Paul by about an hour. Okay. Um, a little under an hour. Yeah. And so the St. Croix river comes through and on the opposite side is Wisconsin. It's a really cute town. I actually was able to go back, um, this summer, just about a month and a half ago, we went to Minnesota and my parents no longer live in Stillwater. They live in a different suburb now, but we were able to go back and it was really fun to see it's changed a lot. And um yeah it's a really cute town in minnesota cool cool i i now that you say you're from minnesota i can kind of hear the the minnesota uh slang when you're when you're talking my o's get a little long sometimes (laughs) it's so funny because like i've lived in you know different places in the country and uh you know like when somebody's like from let's just say like the south right or somebody's from like you know southern california or there's just specific ways that people talk. You're like, okay, like they're not, you know, especially if they're like in Iowa or someone's like, okay, they're not, they're not from around here. Like, where are you from? But then I've asked people like when I've lived in maybe like Detroit or out in Colorado, I'm like, do I have like a, do I have like an accent? And they're like, yeah, you do. <laughs> but, and it's, so it's kind of funny just to uh, find out where people are originally from and uh, maybe the way they talk is, uh, uh, you know, has something to do with that. Now, um, let's touch on, I want to, I want to touch on a uh, church a little bit, because you mentioned that earlier that you and your husband and family go to church and you said that was a big part of your upbringing and, and me just being fully transparent, uh, uh, in our conversation, like church was uh, a huge part of my life growing up as well. And, you know, my faith right now is, you know, still very important to me. So, so, uh, and I don't always get to talk about this type of stuff with people because not everybody's. Uh, you know, maybe in the same area uh, with the similar faith that that we share, right? So in terms of growing up, going to church, because I went through all of that experience too, went through kind of the youth group, my dad's a, a pastor's kid and things of that nature. From your perspective as a kid, Julie, what was the experience of church like for you? Did you enjoy it? And then did you have to discover your faith at some point when you were older for yourself, did you go through any times where you kind of walked away from your faith or anything like that? Just again, kindly for myself, like growing up, going to church and youth group, I walked away from God, kind of walked away from all of that, partied towards the end of high school into college. And then, uh, you know, uh, came back to Jesus in college um, and had to kind of rediscover or discover that faith for myself, separate from my parents and kind of that church influence when I was a kid. So can you touch on that and those experiences 
uh, for yourself, please. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say that my faith has gone through a pretty big transformation. Um, like I alluded to before, I grew up in a, um, like an evangelical free church where, um, I had, I had great memories from, um, and I have great memories from, uh, now, <laughs> and I have great friends still from, from church. Um, and a lot of my morals and my values, um, stem from what I was taught in church growing up. Um, there are a lot of, th so there are a few concepts in church that I no longer agree with and have gone through a transformation from and have looked back on and, and view a few of the things that were taught to be kind of harmful to me, actually. Um, and that has been a process in my adult years, um, the last like probably seven, eight years of really dissecting some of these more strict, um, you know, I want to be like, kind, like I try and be kind about not judgmental, but it, it, a lot of the things that I grew up with were just very black and white. Yeah. Um, and there wasn't a lot of room for gray. And so like, you're either going to heaven or you're going to hell. Like it's just, and then how you go to heaven is you, you say this prayer and you're there. Like, and, um, as an adult, specifically after I had my first child, um, who's now five and a half. Um, I was just like, man, I don't know if I can agree with this anymore. Like that if somebody is like, if my, if my baby girl like died and went, you know, I don't believe that she's going to go to hell. Like, and I don't think any, I don't think most Christians do believe that. Right. Like I, I want to put that out there. But it got me thinking more about the, the theology behind the very black and white thinking where I was like, wow, there's, there's so many loopholes to this, mm -hmm. at least for me, this is, this is where I'm coming from. And, um, cause I'm like, well, obviously like people in my church growing up would not believe that like a baby, like an innocent baby that died would go to hell. Like everyone hands down would believe that they would like that baby would go to heaven. So it's like, so if we, if we are all in agreement with this, then there's loopholes here. Like, it's not just you get to heaven by saying this prayer. Um, and so it, yeah, it, just led me down into this path of deconstruction, which is really hard. And I've lost friends over it. Um, and I've gained friends over it. And um, yeah, so it's like, so yes, so path of deconstruction over like, what do I actually believe about salvation and eternity? And um, yes, I still do believe in Jesus. And um, what Jesus did to save the world. But there are things about the evangelical church that really don't sit well with me anymore. Um, 
another thing that I really had to deconstruct was purity culture and um, how much shame and guilt that puts on women. And that was um, a very hard process to go through. So I even get like choked up about it now. I haven't talked about it in a while. Um, and uh that is also something I really don't want my, my girls. I have two girls. I really don't want them to go through the shame and guilt that I felt because of church. So, um, sorry. I don't know if this is what you were expecting. (laughs) This is is why I do this because it's, it's just, it's just real talk with real people. It's, I love it. It's beautiful. It's all good. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, so yeah, it's those two things. And I think this is probably a little bit emotional for me because I've never spoken about it on a recording. So, uh, um, I'm happy to talk about it to people. We're, we're, um, we're, we're pulling out, uh, the Brene Brown, just the, the vulnerability stuff, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. So, um, so anyway, so now we go to, and it's been a pro like COVID actually came at a great time for me because I was not wanting to go to church. <laughs> and so, um, it was like fantastic. Like I got a year break from church. I didn't feel like required to go. <laughs> and, um, and that was, that was really great. And by that point in time, we had, um, my husband, my, so my husband was kind of on this path of deconstruction before me. So, he had had a lot of these questions before I even got to have these kind of questions. And he would bring them up to me and talk. And sometimes I would get very defensive. And other times I would, you know, entertain a conversation. And then it's, it was definitely after the um, the birth of our oldest child where I was like, wow, no, a lot of the th- a lot of these questions that you've been bringing up to me, like, I see where you're coming from. I see why you're asking them. And I see what points you're bringing up. And, um, and so, so yeah, so at that point in time, we switched, we were going to, uh, like a, a kind of a very similar charismatic, like evangelical type church. And then after our daughter was born, we switched and now we go to a evangelical, um, Lutheran church. So an ELCA church, which in the name sounds very similar, but, um, it's actually a, they are, accepting of lgbtq and um they are uh, a lot at least the the church that we go to is um just a, how i would put it and i always this terminology always got me mad in my evangelical church years but um they do seem to be more open minded when it comes to um eternal life mm. and how and how you know we are saved So um, that feels really, really good to be in a church body and have pastors that um, can acknowledge that maybe we don't know it all and maybe that it is not all black and white Mm. and that there is room for question and that question is okay and that question is good and that that we don't have to have an answer to. Um, And that felt very revolutionary to me coming from the church that I grew up in because it was almost like if you did have a question, there was an answer to it. And that was the only answer. And that was just what you were stuck with. There wasn't room for, well, what if, or let's talk about this situation. Um, Or like, hey, it's okay in 
like to bring up the salvation, like it's okay if a baby dies and goes to heaven and doesn't say the prayer, but yet what about, you know, a, a teenager maybe um, living in a different faith dies and we're saying that because they're not Christian, they're going to go to hell. So um, just like, you know, leaving, go to a church now that leaves that open and, and open for dialogue and question and like, there doesn't have to even be an answer, which um, feels very different from the place that I grew up. So, um, so yes, yeah, so there's that, and I forgot where I was going. Now, what was the question? <laughs> no, that that's, that's that kind of where we, that's where we were going. I mean, just kind of the church stuff when you're younger and the church stuff now and, and, uh, you, 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 you hit the nail right on the head. You touched on it. So we'll, uh, yeah, that's, that's great. Let's, uh, let's, uh, so let's talk about, uh, I want to, again, staying in the, um, your, your childhood, Julie, uh, in terms of like academics. So you mentioned like you, you, you got the good grades, you got, you know, did all the academic stuff, but now as an adult, you kind of realized or uh, were validated in the fact that you had some sort of learning disability, but outside of getting good grades and all that, did you enjoy school? Did you did you enjoy academics? Touch on that for a quick minute. Oh, I think if I were to go back to school, I would enjoy it more than what I did when I was in it, um, partly because of the things that I've learned about myself and how, how I personally learn. Um, so there were definitely aspects of school that I really enjoyed. Um, I, I've always been very social. I like meeting people and talking to people. And, um, I, I loved that aspect of college. Um, oh yeah, I didn't share. So in call, do you want me to tell you about college? Uh, no, no, not quite yet. Not, not yet. Okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't remember the question now. See, this is what happens to me. My brain will forget things. No, it's okay. <laughs> we're just talking about uh, you know, did you enjoy school when you were younger? Oh, did I enjoy school? Yeah. Um, yeah, there were things that I did enjoy, especially like the social aspect of it. And, um, I've always had very good, good friends in my life. Like that is one thing that I am so thankful for. I don't think I've ever had a crappy friend. Like the people that are in my life are just so cool. And, um, yeah, I've got really great friends and I'll, I always have um, and I feel really, really thankful about that. Um, uh, when it comes, I think that had I had better um, encouragement with learning new things and not feeling like I had to know this. And if I didn't know that, that I was dumb, I think that I would have enjoyed learning more um, in my upbringing. Mm -hmm. So school. Uh, school felt like I had to perform, I guess, maybe would be a better answer to that. I don't know that I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, most of us, uh, you know, that went to, uh, you know, the kind of the traditional public private schools growing up, uh, you, you, you do it because you have to, right? And I don't know about you, but for me, when I'm forced to do something, I just, it, there's something that just repulses me about that inside even when I was a kid. So I think for a lot of us who are curious as adults and, you know, uh, have questions and love learning, we've kind of looked back on our childhood and, and just like, man, like 
school is like just kind of boring and you were forced to do it and you learn so much stuff that you you don't learn it because you don't apply it. You just memorize it to take tests. And it's just, it's just, it's just not uh, our educational system publicly in our country right now is not in my personal opinion, a good place because you're, you're not really learning. You're, you're memorizing, you're learning how to memorize yeah. and take tests. And like you said, it's, it's kind of like more just performance as opposed to actually learning, applying, growing, maturing and all the things. So um, okay, one last question, Julie, in terms of kind of like your upbringing and childhood, then we'll uh, take a jump into uh, post high school talk. But outside of your parents, was there any teachers, coaches, other uh, adults that you feel like when you look back now as an adult, you're like, man, I'm so thankful that this person or that person was in my life and they were my mentor or they poured into me or they spoken in my life at an important, pivotal uh, point. Anybody like that outside of your parents or was it mostly your parents? I would say it was mostly my parents. Um, my, that was also part of it was like, um, having a strong family unit, right. Is That's what you grow up with. And so, um, influences outside of my family were fairly minimal. Um, but I did have uh, uh, my track coach and, um, I had a soccer coach that I wouldn't, <laughs> I, would, I don't know what I would say about him, but, um, but he, uh, yeah, I actually don't remember his name, but, uh, but yeah, I can remember his voice, <laughs> um, which isn't that, isn't that funny that I can't remember his name. My, my husband, a tangent here, my husband and I, it's so funny. My husband, his memory is so good. He remembers the names of all of his teachers. He remembers very specific memories as a child. And for me, I'm like, they're all very fuzzy. My memories as a child are very fuzzy. And like, if he knew that I couldn't remember the name of my soccer coach, he would be like, what? You can't remember the name of your soccer coach? Like, didn't you have him for like 10 years? Pro yeah, probably I did. But I don't, I don't remember his name. Um, that's, isn't that bad? Um, now I'm a lot better at re remembering people's names. Um, so I had my soccer coach that that did influence me a decent amount. And then I had a uh, my track coach in high school. His name, I remember his name. His name was Coach Andy. And um, I really, really loved Coach Andy. I thought he was a great influence on, on uh, showing me that I could get better at something. Um, and I was able to get better. Triple jump was my like main, um, event as a, you know, high schooler in track. And, um, and I did, I got, I improved on that and that was really, so that that's memorable to me. Um, but yeah, I would say most of my influence came from my, my parents. Okay, cool. Okay. Now, what were you thinking about uh, in terms of what you want to do or be when you grew up, when you were in high school and then you graduated high school? Did you kind of move in that direction in college or did life take you in a different direction, Julie? You have the job that I wanted to be in high school. So um, I wanted to be a PE teacher. Oh, okay. Cool. Um, as a, 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 like for a long time in elementary school through high school. Um, I'm not sure why I got talked out of going that route. Um, it was probably my parents. I don't know. Like, I'm not sure why 
I got talked out of it. Um, so, but being a gym teacher was always something that I wanted to do. Um, and was that the question? What I wanted to do? Yep. Yeah, I think. What did you actually go off to college and study then since you didn't do uh, physical education? Yeah, so in college, so I started at, at college at Indiana Wesleyan University. It's a small college in like the middle of Indiana. And um, I went to school there for a year and a half and I was undecided. Um, and yeah, I don't know why I didn't pursue physical education as a teacher. Um, I should probably like go back in my brain and try and figure out why I didn't do that. It probably was because I was probably encouraged not to become a teacher, like uh, for like pay and things like that, Um, which is unfortunate because I do think that I would have enjoyed being a a PE teacher. Um, So I probably got talked out of that. So then I was undecided. I I know for a little while I felt like I should go into business um, and didn't, I think I took a business class and I was like, no, my sister was an econ major. And then my dad was a businessman. So I, I think I had some like influences there feeling like I needed to do uh, something in business. Um, but yeah, I was undecided until I transferred college, uh, to, from Indiana Wesleyan university to Concordia college, um, in Moorhead, Minnesota. And, um, Part of that was because I decided I wanted to to study nutrition and they didn't have a nutrition program there. Um, And part of that also is I was in a relationship with somebody and uh, it ended and I I felt like I needed to, um, that was a very small school and I felt like I needed to remove myself. Um, So, so yeah, that was a kind of a double-edged reason for transferring uh, colleges. And then, so yeah, so then I studied nutrition at Concordia college. So, so how did you, how did you kind of, uh, come upon studying nutrition then? Like there had to have been something in your life that, uh, was a light switch in your brain. That's like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm going to study nutrition. Like, were you fascinated with nutrition in high school or did you, uh, struggle with an eating disorder or something in college or high school? Like what was that all about? Yeah. Uh, so I took a nutrition class. They had one nutrition class at Indiana Wesleyan or I, I is what that college was called. Um, and I did, I thought it was really interesting. Um, and so, uh, that was probably part of it. And then also I never have been diagnosed with an eating disorder. I don't think, um, you know, you have to check a lot of boxes to get diagnosed with specifically, anorexia or bulimia. And I never checked all the boxes, but I definitely had disordered eating tendencies and restriction tendencies. And, um, and that leads biologically, if you restrict food, that leads to food obsession. And, um, and it's something I've learned a lot about since and, uh, have overcome and feel like I'm in a really healthy, healthy relationship with food now. But looking back on it, you know, it was during a period of time, you know, like your young 20s, right? Your late teens, young 20s, where that, uh, especially if you're, especially for a lot of people, but I really think millennials got hit very hard with um, body image and um, and a lot of messaging about how your body should look. And 
naturally how you get your body to change is you uh, change the way that you eat and you change the way that you um, move. And, um, and so, so yeah, so that was a trigger for me uh, looking back on it. It's like, oh yeah, that was like in a deep, you know, um, a period of time where I was restricting my food to change the way that my body looked. And now that I know that, wow, if you restrict, you know, overall calories, then that can cause food obsession. And then you get obsessed about learning about food. And so that definitely was a, uh, I think a big factor as to why I decided to study nutrition and become a dietitian. Okay. Um, now let, I want to, uh, talk about kind of the, you know, the, the body image stuff and the restricting food, because that's a huge topic for a lot of people. Um, was it okay. So like when you started restricting, okay, let's, let's, I want to, I want to ask you this at what age or around what age or time frame in your life, did you start recognizing, Hey, I need to be this or that in terms of the way that you look and, and why was that? Did, did like a, a boy or a guy say something to you or did you hear some girls saying something like, can you, can you touch on that, Julie, please? Yes, I can. Um, I'm trying to think back as to when I'm sure the messaging started quite early. Um, uh, probably most heavily on me actually behavior wise changing things was probably somewhere in my teenage years, probably like 15 or 16, I would say probably, um, of really, you know, overanalyzing my, my body and, um, and then therefore it affecting the way the foods that I, I chose to eat and how much I chose to eat of them, eat of them. And also, running for punishment, uh, to change my body rather than, you know, running for enjoyment. Um, so, so yeah, that was probably in my, my teenage years where that behavior started. The messaging starts much earlier than that. Um, yeah. And, and so now, you know, uh, you know, uh, as a dietitian and stuff, uh, do you have a lot of people, uh, that, um, you know, you've come in contact with that maybe you work with, or you've talked to or whatever that, uh, you know, have those, uh, body image issues even now as adults and struggle with, with, uh, fueling themselves or feeding themselves appropriately. Hands down 100%. Yeah. My, my practice is, um, you know, I help people fuel for ultra marathons and, um, I help people perform better. So mine is a performance-based, um, practice. However, uh, a good chunk of people that come to me and a lot of them who are open to me about it are women. Um, and they, um, and there's a level of trust that you have to have with somebody in order for them, you know, for them to feel like they, they will share that with you. So I do have clients that, um, I feel comfortable taking on be, uh, because they are ultra runners and they do want, they do struggle feeling, but they have a history of 
eating disorder and um and and that is another layer of what we work on um with them feeling comfortable with their fueling and confident in their fueling and overcoming a lot of these um struggles that people with a history of an eating disorder have mm. so okay now um we're, we're we, we might come back to that a little bit once we get kind of into what you're you're doing today um but I want to move into uh, so you 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 study nutrition in college. Um, when you graduate from college, talk about how life uh, unfolds from that point. Yeah, my husband and I got married. Uh, oh, I went to grad school. Yeah, yeah, I went to grad school in Oklahoma, and. Um, I did a year long in order to become a dietitian, you have to do an internship. And um, my internship was um, a combined master's degree and also internship. And I have family. Uh, my sister married a um, Oklahoma boy. And so his family was down in Oklahoma. And um, so that was part of the reason why people are like, why did you apply to Oklahoma? And I was like, well, I had, you know, connections down there. So um and they had this program available that um, was desirable to me. I also, I graduated college a semester early. And so I wanted to start my internship in December and I didn't want to wait to the fall. And so that narrowed down my options as well as to where I could go. And so this, this particular program uh, was appealing to me because it was a year long and I could get both my internship and a master's degree at the end of it. So, um, so I went to Oklahoma and did my internship. That was a pretty fun year. Um, and, uh, you know, very independent year. And, um, I was dating my husband at the time and then I, we, I graduated. So it was just a year. It's not that long of a time. Um, graduated, got a, um, my first job as a dietitian was a like a six month uh, maternity leave coverage for two dietitians at this one hospital. So one had a baby and then when she came back, the other one had a baby. So it worked out quite well. Um, and then I got a permanent position in the Twin Cities area and worked as a clinical dietitian. And then also, so here's another area of my career life that I've done that hasn't come up. I also, um, part of this job was doing diabetes education classes. And so, um, through doing that, I got enough hours, at, uh, in diabetes education. And I actually, um, I'll, I will let it lapse. I'm going to, uh, let it expire this year, but I have a certification in, um, diabetes education. So I, then became a certified diabetes educator, which now their title is a certified diabetes education specialist or something like that. CDC, yes, or anyway, education specialist. Anyway, uh, so I worked as a diabetes educator for five, five years in Minnesota and then um, a couple years in uh, Coeur d'Alene when my husband went to PA school. Oh, I got married in there. And um, and then we moved to Montana where I live now. I, I worked as a diabetes educator for kids for nearly five years here. Uh, maybe it was four years here. And um, and then the last couple years, I 
quit and now I have my own private practice. And five years, five and a half years ago, I had my first daughter and a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, because my daughter just turned one this past week, had my second daughter. So when's, when's your uh, daughter's birthday in July? July 20th. Ah, mine's the 24th. So close, close. Oh. Well, happy birthday, <laughs> belated birthday to you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it's crazy. Uh, getting older is so surreal. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what's going on, but, uh, anyways, um, you and Justin, how did you guys meet? Tell us that story. That's always a fun story. Uh, if it comes up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we met in college when I moved or when I transferred to Concordia, um, Justin was one of the first, um, was one of the first men I met at Concordia, actually. Um, I met quite, I got, I had a high school friend that I got connected with that went to Concordia College. And then, so she introduced me to a lot of her friends who then became a lot of my close friends in college, which was really fantastic. And then Justin was, um, you know, in a friend group that was associated to this one. And um, we met, uh, well, we got to know each other on a Habitat for Humanity trip. I got connected. Um, I really wanted to go on a Habitat for Humanity trip. And there was a spot open and Justin was the leader on that trip. Um, he was dating somebody else. So don't worry. It didn't like all start right there. But um, but we became friends. And um, yeah, so we were friends, you know, had not like hangout friends, but just like, you know, would see each other in passing and um, hang out at get togethers and things like that. And he it was a year older than me. Um, so he graduated, um, uh, well, it ended up being a semester before me cause I graduated early, but anyway, uh, in the summer after he graduated, so I like both of us didn't ever think we would see each other again. Cause we just were like, cool. Nice knowing you. Like <laughs> we'll probably, I don't know when we'll see you next anyway. So, um, some of our mutual friends got married that summer and, um, both of us were at that wedding and that's kind of where some things sparked and, um, we got to hang out and, um, he asked if he could kiss me that night and I told him no. So, <laughs> um, oh, yeah, love. these are the best stories. This is like always the <laughs> best part of a conversation. If we, uh, get to it now, now, why did you say no? Oh, well, I mean, there was alcohol involved oh. on both of our parts. And so I just did it. I didn't want it to, I just didn't. I don't, I didn't want to, you know, go down that route. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. um, so yeah, so, uh, but then, but then we started a long distance relationship, you know, over phone calls and, and whatnot. He was a forest firefighter for, um, in the summertime. And that's what he did right after college to make some more money. And then, um, he lived at, in home at home, uh, doing some, he became a paramedic, um, and did EMT stuff. And, um, then we kind of, yeah, started officially dating during my, during my semester back, my last semester of college. And so visited him a few times and he came to visit me. And then, um, yeah, we, we started our relationship long distance and it was long distance for a long time because then I went to Oklahoma, um, which I think was really beneficial because it it made us communicate really well so we had to learn how to communicate um and 
not like assume things, right? Like if, if the other person doesn't answer the phone, you don't know why they didn't answer the phone. You're not there. Like, and uh, so a, a lot of trust was built and a lot of communication was built. Um, so yeah, so we did, I mean, our long distance probably was close to two years. Wow. And then when I um, graduated from my internship and my master's degree, then my first, uh, that six month job that I had was um, back in the Moorhead, Minnesota area. And Justin at the time was working as a, a pair or EMT. At, he was EMT at the time in uh, Fargo, uh, North Dakota, which it's basically the same location. Um, and then we got engaged and then he got a paramedic position down in the Twin Cities. Um, and that's what he was doing when we first um, got married. And now he's a PA. He's a physician assistant now. So, um, but yeah, so that's, that's his, him and my timeline. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that, Julie. That's always, it's always, uh, if that topic comes up on a conversation, it's always usually pretty fun. So, um, okay, Definitely. we're gonna, we're gonna, we've already been going for over an hour. So I want to kind of uh, finish up with like business talk and nutrition talk and kind of like your transformation or your evolution from, you know, the internship up to having your own business now. So um, why don't you share a little bit about what, what were some of the things that you enjoyed about, you know, working in the, the hospital setting and doing the diabetes education with kids and all of that? Like, what was some of that uh, uh, positives or what did you enjoy about that? And then um, what were maybe some of the negatives of that? Because I've had a lot of dietitians, a lot of nutrition type people on that have their own businesses kind of like you. And, you know, I think most of you, if you go the, the normal, typical uh, RD uh, route, you know, you have to do some sort of like hospital work or that's kind of where most people end up. Um, and a lot of them that now have their businesses are like, I, I really didn't like that at all. So do you kind of share <laughs> yeah. that sentiment? So some of the positives, some of the negatives, and then lead us into why you decided to start your own business. Was it kind of like, Hey, I, I just don't want to be in the hospital setting anymore. Or touch on that, please. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I did my due diligence and I got my two years clinical, like they recommend you doing. And, um, and it wasn't, you know, it's not, it's not the life for me. Um, and I wish that I would have been told earlier on, like you, if you go into diet, like if you become a dietitian, you do not have to do two years clinical. Um, but that is the message that is like hounded into you. And I'm sure there's a multitude of reasons as to why they need dietitians to go into the hospital and work. So, um, but yes, so, um, I didn't love clinical. We'll just put it that way. And then I did when I, uh, I never, I never viewed, um, being a diabetes educator as something in school that I would do. Um, and that did end up being a passion. I did love working with people who have diabetes. Um, I, I did quite a bit of training in motivational interviewing. And to this day, I find it very, very helpful in the way that I communicate with um, people in general, and definitely my clients and my patients that I've worked with. Um, and I think that 
people with diabetes, there are a lot of stereotypes around people with diabetes and particularly with type two diabetes. And a lot of fault is put on that person for having diabetes. And when really one of the largest factors for diabetes is genetics and, um, over 20% of people with type two diabetes are not overweight either. They have, they live in a, um, what we would classify, and I have my own problems with the BMI, but it, what we would classify as a um, healthy body weight within the BMI system. So um, there are a lot of stereotypes around diabetes, and um, I really enjoyed being a person that could be a person. I don't have diabetes. I don't know what it's like to live with diabetes, but I really enjoyed being a person that was able to um, help people manage their diabetes better and come to them without uh, blame and blaming them. Um, because that, that was a very common message that people received as uh, when, when they were diagnosed with type, with any diabetes, but particularly type two. Um, uh, so I really enjoyed putting motivational interviewing to work. Like, and also I loved that di diabetes education wasn't all about food, that there was also your blood sugars and your activities. So like activity levels, um, there were so many other things that we could troubleshoot to focus on ra rather than food and weight when it came to diabetes. So I really loved that. Um, Anyway, so, uh, so yeah, I, and there's a part of me that mourns the fact that I don't do that anymore. Um, and so that was type two diabetes with adults. When I moved to Montana, there, there was a pediatric position open, which that was a very steep learning curve because type one diabetes, um, in children is a lot different than type two. And, um, and that was even more fun for me because then there was more gizmos and gadgets. There's pumps and CGMs. And there's insulin adjustments um, that you're not doing as a dietitian, obviously, but you work with a, a, a physician, um, an endocrinologist to help make those adjustments. And I found that really, really enjoyable. Um, the reason why I ultimately ended up getting out of it was, uh, unfortunately, it was a, a huge pay gap. So um, there was, uh, I won't, I want to be mindful as to like how much information I put on a podcast, but um, it came to my attention that there was a, a very large pay difference within the same um, uh, job description. And um, I was on the, obviously the low end of that functioning as a high level uh, provider uh, for being a diabetes educator and a dietitian. And um, I fought to, uh, you know, I was like, Hey, this, I found out about this and I was like, this is not okay. And I had a lot of support from, um, the physician that I worked with, the PA that I worked with, um, the head of pediatrics, um, all were on the same page as me. And then unfortunately the hospital administration was not willing to budge. So, um, I was, I realized that it was a very, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Privileged. It was a very pri privileged thing for me to be able to quit my job because I didn't feel like I was getting paid enough. Mm -hmm. Um, I realized that there are other people that 
are in situations like those that can't walk away and that have to just take the fact that they're getting paid less than what they should. Mm. Um, and so that was ultimately why I left. And, uh, and I also, also probably a little bit of burnout too, but, um, uh, but yeah, so that was, and so that, and I didn't, I had, you know, a, a little girl at this point in time, I didn't have my second child yet, but I also didn't like the fact that I had to ask for time off. So I wanted more freedom there. Um, so there, it was definitely a multitude of things, but the largest one was that the first one that I mentioned. So, um, so when I quit my, uh, my clinical job, I had a bit of a, a midlife career crisis. <laughs> so, um, it was like, oh my gosh, I just walked away from a profession that I've been doing for 10 years and, one that I really actually enjoyed. And um, now what the heck am I going to do? And my husband and I have been, yeah, I hadn't no, mentioned that, but we have been in the ultra or endurance world for a long time and ultra running world for nearly a decade. And um, it was, I had an epiphany um, one time at a race a few years ago. Um, it was a very big mountain run race that happens in Montana. And we had 11 friends running at the, at this event and six of them really struggled with, um, their fueling four of the six didn't finish their race, uh, because they got sick. And then two of the other six finished, but they finished a lot slower than what they would have, um, because they really struggled with feeling and uh, they both like projectile vomited like on <laughs> on the trail. So it got me thinking, you know, with my dietitian brain and my newly, you know, found freedom of not working. And so I got that and I had a business coach at the time and um, trying to help me figure out what to do. So I got them all on the phone and talked to them and was like, hey, can you tell me about what happened at the race? And you know, what did you fuel with? What did you eat? When did you eat it? And um, to all of them, like the understanding as to why things went off the rails, they just didn't have an idea. And to me, in my dietitian brain, I was like, well, clearly you weren't eating enough. You were dehydrated. You were underfueled. Like, um, and so to me, it was like this light switch of like, oh, hey, this is an area that I understand. I I have a passion for. I really love ultra running and I love ultra runners. And here's a really fantastic niche that I can get into and really help people um, improve their performance and feel better. So that hopefully gave you the answer to all of those things. <laughs> very, very, very well uh done Juliana answering all the questions there now okay we're gonna I want to we'll, we'll finish our conversation with kind of the ultra running stuff because that's a whole another fascinating world but let's wrap up uh the business talk so you mentioned a couple podcasts that you listened to uh of, of business coaches that you've had can you talk to us about the importance of having a business coach in your corner uh and how that kind of helps shape or mold or or helped you specifically personally kind of step out to pursue uh your own business if you didn't have those coaches would you have pursued your own business hmm. 
so I was trying to do, I was trying to do my own business on my own. So I, I, uh, initially right after I quit my job at the hospital, um, I got my personal trainer certificate and I started doing some personal training, partly because I just didn't want to do nutrition for, I just needed a break. And, um, I was doing that and that was really fun. I, I was like kind of viewing it as like, oh, this is like me fulfilling me wanting to be a PE teacher. Like, um, and I do really enjoy personal training, um, but I was just floundering. I didn't know how to get clients. I didn't know how much to charge. I didn't know how to put it all together. And so it was my husband who was actually like, hey, I think you should like probably hire a business coach to help you out, figure it, figure this out. And so um, I looked into some, and it's funny that I I actually, well, I picked one that was specialized uh, for dietitians to launch their business. And at the time I didn't really want to do nutrition, but I picked one anyway, probably just because I was like, well, I'm a dietitian. So I should pick one that is also a dietitian. Um, And she was also a personal trainer too. So I think that was also part of why I was like, oh yeah, I could, she could help me. Um, there is no way I would be where I am today had I not hired a business coach. So, um, the first business coach I hired was dietitian boss. It's Libby Rothschild. She's amazing. Um, I really, I, I learned a lot of very valuable things from her. Um, and she helped me one figure out my niche. So like, I was floundering in the personal training world and then just kind of realized like, Hey, I don't think this is the route I want to go down. I want to go down ultra running. And so she was the one that was like, Hey, get your friends on a phone call and ask them what happened. Um, because then she's like, you can't run a business if you don't have a problem to solve. So, um, so I had to learn what that problem was that I could solve. Um, and anyway, so and then just all having the systems set up in place and things to follow and um, learning how to sell. Like you don't learn how to sell when you become a dietitian um, and learning how to sell that feels really good personally and also really good to the potential client. Like, are you an actually, are you actually a good fit for me? And if you are, then um here's, you know, tell me about what your struggles are. And then here's my program offer. And does it work for the two of us? Um, I've told people no before, you know, like, Hey, I don't, you don't sound like a great fit for me, but here's another dietitian that would be a better fit for you. So learning to have those, um, just learning to be able to function and run a business. And then also learning how to talk to people and sell my product, my services, um, there's no way. I I mean, I would have quit had I not uh, hired a business coach, like hands down, I would have quit. Um, and then the, the coach that I currently have is Sarah Hall. And, um, through a number of reasons I, I switched, um, I might go back to Libby one day. Um, but a, a part of me wanted to get another business coach's perspective because I am learning to be curious and learning to learn that there's not just one way to do things and that it can be really valuable to get multiple opinions and multiple ideas on how to do things. So, um, so that's also part of the reason why I went to a, another business coach and that's who I currently work with. Mm. Now, 
the business model that you currently have or you you have, Julie, is it, you know, basically all online or do you have like kind of like a, a physical location that you meet with people? How does that kind of look currently? It's entirely virtual. So my clients are all around the world. I have some clients in Australia. I have some clients in the UK. I've had a client in from Sweden and um, where else have they come from? Uh, uh, yeah, um, Holland. Um, they're all over. And then, of course, all over the U.S. So um, it's all virtual and um, which is really fantastic because I feel like that's it's a very flexible program that I run. And so therefore it it meets the needs of the timing needs of not only my clients, but also the flexibility that I need in my life. So um, it's a mixture of there's a group component. So I have like a group Zoom call. It's a question and answer based call. It's super fun. So people get on, they get my expertise, but then I also open it up to open discussion. So if other people have something that they think would be beneficial for that other person, they can share it. Or they another person can be like chime in and say, I struggle with that too. Um, and then I have a one-on-one component as well, where, you know, somebody can submit something directly to me, like a, like a fuel plan and say, Hey, can you give me feedback on this fuel plan? How can I make this better? And then I'm able just to work with them one-on-one, but I don't do, yeah, it's all, it's all very flexible and, um, and how it runs. And I, I really enjoy, mm. enjoy it. And I, I think clients enjoy it too. Yeah. <laughs> Get good feedback. Excellent. Okay. Now. Um, before we get into the ultra, uh, talk here to, to wrap up our conversation, um, what's been the biggest, you know, we talked about, you know, the biggest life lesson kind of being curious or learning how to be curious or more curious earlier, but in terms of specifically when you launched your own business, what do you feel like personally has been the biggest area of growth? or the biggest breakthrough or hurdle that you've had to jump over to kind of uh, move your business forward, so to speak? Imposter syndrome. Mm, Okay. So, um, yeah, (laughs) that's, uh, yeah, I feel like, you know, I have, I'm a dietitian. Um, I've run ultra marathons. I've run quite a few 50 Ks. The longest I've gone is a 50 miler. And a lot of ultra runners run a hundred Ks, hundred mile races, 200 mile races. So, um, a lot. Yeah. That was a bit, that was like, Ooh, I feel like I should keep this a secret that I haven't run a hundred miles. So I can, um, but the truth of it is if I say that to people, which it will come up, like, have you run a hundred mile race? No, I actually haven't, but I've helped a lot of people run a hundred mile race. Um, uh, people don't care. All they care is that you have information that's going to help them. And, uh, so that was a, that was a breakthrough for me was, um, putting like allowing myself to put myself out there as an expert in ultra running. And, um, the, (laughs) because also I come from a background of diabetes education (laughs) in my professional life. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, so there's this, there's that imposter syndrome there too. And I've talked to other dietitians who hold like the sports, um, sports nutrition certifications. And I've asked them like, do you think it's worth it? And they're like, if you know your stuff, 
you're like your clients aren't going to care if you have that certification. You're a dietitian. You're you are um, qualified and credentialed to speak on the topic. And if what you're saying is helping people, that's all that matters. And so that was like getting that validation has been really helpful too. Um, and then another one, another thing that just like always makes me smile whenever I like. I'm struggling with imposter syndrome is I think about all of the male OBGYN doctors out there. Like there's all of these men delivering babies and we like, you know, they're like professionals and, and the experts at delivering babies, but they have never once delivered a baby themselves. And so, um, (laughs) so I think about that and I'm like, okay, yeah. And there's so many like coaches in the sporting world that are only a coach. They've never been a professional athlete or they've never maybe even played the sport, but they know the sport really well. They know the theories and they can coach people on how to be a better mm. um, sports player and whatever they're coaching. So there's, uh, so I always come back to those situations, you know, those thought processes. Um, I do have a desire to run a hundred miles. Um, and that is a goal of mine that I'm hoping to do maybe, ne- uh, not maybe, I would like to get it done next, next summer sometime. Um, it's a, my husband's run four 100 mile races. And so I've been a part of his and I've paced him at his and crewed him. And so I feel like I've lived experience there that has very uh, beneficial for giving out advice as well. But, um, and, you know, I've made all the fueling mistakes myself and, and done a lot of research on ultra running nutrition as well, but yeah, imposter syndrome and just like being willing to put myself out there and be confident that like, yes, I am an expert at helping people fuel for ultra marathons. And I feel confident in my ability to help you um, get your nutrition and your fueling dialed. Like that has been uh, those words coming out of my mouth. I would have choked on those, you know, two years ago, but now I feel very like I have the social proof of clients that have come through and worked with me. And I've done the personal work also too, to be like, no, Julie, you know, your stuff, like, you know, what works and how to help people. So, um, so yeah, imposter syndrome is what I've had to overcome. Cool. Cool. Okay. Let's, let's, let's dive into, uh, ultra running and then we'll, we'll get out of here, uh, today. We've had an awesome conversation, Julie. So, how did you get into ultra running? It's a very, uh, it's, it's a growing community, but you said you've been in it for about 10 years. So it was much more, uh, uh, niche, uh, 10 years ago than it is now, but it's still a very niche, uh, uh, unique, interesting, uh, group of, of people that, uh, pursue that, uh, endeavor or those endeavors. So how did you, your husband get into it? Talk a little bit about, uh, ultra running. You said interesting with a smirk on your face. Take offense to that. <laughs> no, <kidding. laughs> you shouldn't. I, 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 man, it's, it's just, you've got to be a, a different breed to, to go, go in that, in that route. So, you know, much, in I haven't worlds. done it much respect. So, <laughs> well, we're in different worlds of like extremes of uh, athleticism, right? Cause aren't you a bodybuilder? Yeah. I've uh, done a little bit of research yeah, yeah, on I've you done, too. I've done bodybuilding. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's very extreme. And, very unique and takes a different, 
breed a cat too. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's a different extreme yeah. of, um, yeah, of athleticism, <laughs> taking it to another level. Yeah. Um, yes. And you are right. There is definitely an interesting group of people that are drawn to ultra running and, um, for various reasons. And I, I, I find ultra runners so fun. They are most of the time, most of the time they are very laid back and they are just wanting to get out there for the enjoyment of it. And also um, there's an enjoyment piece and there's also like, I wanna see how far I can take my body. And I find that really, really cool. Um, now I was making those jokes and now I can't remember. See, I forget the questions. Now I can't remember the questions. Uh, how did, how did you and your husband get into ultra running? That's right. So my husband, uh, so uh, I ran a marathon in college when I was in Concordia. And uh, so that was back in 2000. I think my first mar road marathon was 2006, I think, or 2007. I don't remember. And um and so then I started dating Justin and then I think he was like, oh, I need to run a marathon because <laughs> my girlfriend ran a marathon. <laughs> and so uh, so then it just kind of grew from there where uh, he was the first one to do a 50K. And I believe um, at the time I was like, oh, no, I, I don't think I want to do that. So then I just went and, you know, watched him and supported him. And that was about 10 years ago, if not a little bit longer ago that he did his first 50 K and then he did a 50 miler. Um, after we moved to the Spokane Coeur d'Alene area for his PA school. And that's where I was, I kind of started getting the itch. Cause I was like, Oh man, this looks, this looks really fun. Like the community that comes out to show up for these races are so fun. It's so laid back. And it's a very different feel from road marathons. By that time, I had run probably five or six road marathons. And um, and then eventually I decided to sign up for a 50 miler and uh, with a girlfriend. And so um, in training for that, we did a 50K and a bunch of other, you know, long, long runs and and really got more into trail. And ultra running tends to be more trails. Um, and so that was also something that was very desirable to me. I, I realized very quickly that I enjoyed running on trails more so than I did on road. And, um, there's just more like longer stuff that, ha that you can do on trails, um, than road too. So that was kind of how we got into that world. And this also was part of me learning to exercise and move my body in enjoyment for enjoyment rather than punishment and changing my body. So that was also part of that uh, trans uh, back to that conversation. That was also part of that um, transformation in my life. Okay. Um, through the ultra running, what have you learned about yourself? Because again, I've never done uh, the longest I've done is a half marathon, uh, but I've had a lot of, I've, I've talked to quite a few ultra runners through podcasting over the last five years and listen to different, uh, ultra runners, uh, and, and, you know, ultra endurance, uh, individuals on podcasts. And it seems like for a lot of people, there's through every race, there's some sort of transformational moment, or there's some sort of, uh, 
uh, learning experience through that 50K or that 50 mile or that 100 mile or that 250 mile or whatever. Have you found that to be true? And if so, what do you feel like has been the biggest growth for you through the ultra experiences, Julie? Yeah, I would agree. There's usually, um, you you put yourself out there for a long enough period of time and put these obstacles in front of you, then yeah, you're bound to learn something and get stretched. Um, yeah, uh, I, I would say for me, uh, just a consistent lesson is, um, <laughs> I don't know if it, a consistent thing that comes to my mind, I don't know, uh, is you're not there yet. Um, like you, 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 you still got ways to, you still have a ways to go. Um, you're not done. And, um, yeah. And I think that is a valuable lesson and just like, there's, there's still work to be done. There's still stuff that you've got to do ahead of you. There's still, um, yeah, it's not over. <laughs> and even when the race is over, it's still not over. You know, you still got to take yourself, take care of yourself in recovery. And, um, and so I would say that is kind of like the, maybe in general, uh, more like conceptual thing that I learn every time. And then, um, another thing is just that I learn every race is the more I take care of myself, the better I perform. And so I'm obviously going to wrap this back into fueling, but like, um, the more I fuel my body, the more I'm able to go and push and go faster and feel better doing it. And that's been a progressive learning, uh, curve for even me personally. Um, so, and, and I think that can be applied in other areas of life as well too. Like if you, um, want to progress and get better at something, then you've got to, you've got to take care of yourself. Sounds like uh, that growth mindset to me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's uh, let's tie it all together and then let's uh, let's wrap it up here, Julie. So we we got the nutrition stuff. We got the ultra stuff. Um, you are a, a, a dietitian who focuses on fueling uh, ultra athletes. So let's give the listeners some valuable, uh, you know. Uh, 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 information. If they are an ultra athlete, what are some simple, uh, you know, components or things that people can kind of put into practice immediately if they're an ultra athlete in terms of nutrition, that's going to help their performance. Yeah. So, um, day-to-day -day nutrition is always a hard topic to talk about for me. Um, in the ultra running world, because it's such big concepts. And, um, so fueling long runs, I can get a lot more detailed and specific on, that's, um, that's fine. go, that, go down it, that route. That's fine. Whatever's easiest for you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And part of it's just, uh, because of the theory of nutrition I go by and that's, you know, intuitive eating and, and learning to fuel your body with enough food, but also having practical hunger too, where it's like, you know, your body needs to eat to get some food, but even if you don't have hunger for it. So there's, um, the, the day-to-day -day nutrition is, we could be a whole nother podcast in and of itself. And it is something that if clients have questions about, we talk about and how they could fuel themselves better and more efficiently there. Um, when it comes to fueling for ultra marathons, 
um, it you can get pretty dialed. And I think it actually is really helpful to get really dialed and pretty specific. Um, that's a turnoff for some people because they don't want it, like they, they think that it takes too much time to to think about it. But really, ultimately, um, ultra running is not intuitive. And I don't recommend winging it or going by or, or fueling by feel. Um, that's likely going to end up putting you uh, at a slower pace later on in the race because you haven't, your body's not going to tell you that it needs to eat when you're running, um, specifically for a number of reasons. So, um, and there are, I've, my method of fueling is to start fueling early and often. So I want my, my runners start eating within the first 30 minutes of a race, um, to keep their digestive system turned on and, um, just to not dig that calorie deficit any bigger either. Larry, you're going to be out there ultra marathons. The time for ultra marathons is defined as a six hour race or longer. Um, so there's some 50 K's out there that don't necessarily fall into this, but if, if they're fast 50 K, but a lot of, um, so if, the, if the run is six hours long, 18 hours long, 24 hours long, some 200s take a couple of days. Um, the Tahoe 200, um, can take people. I think I, I'm not sure what the cutoff is, but it might be up to four days that they can be out there. Um, and 200 is a whole nother that's a whole nother thing. I'm, I, my, mine is mostly for uh 50 Ks to hundred milers. And then the 200 mile uh, fueling strategy does change a bit. Um, but for, uh, so you start fueling early and often. Um, and there are four different pieces of fueling that I tell people to narrow down to and pay attention to, and that's carbohydrates, protein, overall fluid intake and sodium. And so, um, how I break or how I encourage people to break it down is to group those four things into two, two, uh, two groups. Mm -hmm. So you pay attention to your carbohydrate intake and your protein intake. Ideally, we're on average getting around 60 grams of carbohydrate every hour. Um, if you can get more, that's better. Uh, and then around five to 10 grams of protein every hour. Um, protein really is unique to ultra running. It's not something that you need to do if it's um, a race that will take less than six hours or a marathon distance. Um, protein really uh, is there. It helps to actively recover muscles. Um, and it also helps people tolerate eating food for a longer period of time because 60 grams of carbohydrate is a lot um, to consume consistently every single hour. And so if you have that protein piece, just to balance everything out a little bit, balance your, um, your, your blood sugar out a little bit, balance your stomach out a little bit. And, um, it just keeps things a little bit more smoother and happier rather than if you're just pounding down the carbs the whole time. Um, so it's those two pieces. And then we have our fluid and our sodium that we also, uh, replace on an hourly basis. And most you, Fluid needs and hydration needs and sodium electrolyte needs are vary quite drastically from runner to runner. Um, if somebody doesn't have a whole lot of issues, I can typically say like, here's the general guideline. Let's have you do this. If you do it and you, and you feel well, then we don't need to do anything in, in addition to figuring out your hydration needs. And that would be, um, right around 500 milliliters or half a liter of, of fluid every hour. 
um, the range there is 400 to 800 milliliters of fluid an hour. And then you're replacing your sodium at half that. Um, so for every liter of fluid that you drink, you consume 500 milligrams of sodium. Mm. To break that down easier for people, um, I say at least you're consuming at the very bare minimum 250 milligrams of sodium. That's bottom of the bones. Most people need much more than that. Mo most people need about 500 to 800 milligrams of sodium every hour. I have some clients that replace their sodium at above a thousand milligrams an hour because they're really salty sweaters. Um, and so, so yeah, so those are kind of the, the four things and then you group them in two and then they're not so overwhelming to figure out um, what people need, but it does take time to build up. Like a lot of people come to me pretty severely under feeling. Um, and so it does take time to build up the, your gut tolerance to be able to tolerate more food. Um, and that, you know, you do that over the course of time with your training runs and gradually increase the grams of carb up to where you are hopefully getting about 60 grams of carb an hour. Okay. Spoken like a, a true uh, professional, <laughs> an expert, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. That was excellent. Okay. Um, what what does uh, Julie, Justin, and the girls do um, for fun? What do you guys like to do as a family outside of the being a, a physician's assistant and the nutrition coaching and, and all the professional stuff? What's What's some of the family go-tos for you guys? Oh, you know, the stereotypical, like we like doing outdoor stuff, right? So we, um, we love hiking. We live in a really beautiful location where we have access to a lot of hiking trails. And, um, so, so yeah, we like to get out and hike. Um, and we recently purchased a camper van. So, um, getting out and camping more frequently, um, uh, we've done it once with all four of us and it, it went pretty well. It was pretty fun. Okay. Um, so yeah. And then, you know, just little bike rides around here and there and we have, you know, we'd like to do tootle around our house and have fun, have fun around here, but, um, watch movies together. Um, yeah, I would say those are kind of the main pastimes that we have. I also really love going out to eat. I like love going out to eat because I love it that somebody else cooks my food and then serves it to me. And then I don't have to do the dishes. Yeah, yeah. I love going out to eat. Mm. So that's another thing that I enjoy. Okay. Since you, <laughs> since you said that, I got to ask you if you could have like one restaurant cooked meal, it doesn't have to be like at a specific restaurant, but what, what are you, what are you going to have? What's kind of your go-to uh, eating out food that you, uh, you enjoy, Julie? Mm. I try and pick things on the menu that are things that I don't, I wouldn't make at home. Okay. Um, and we, I, I'm going to say Thai food. Um, I really love a good, like green curry. And I, I really love, like I desire green curry because there's not a great Thai food restaurant where I live. Um, we have one, it's all right. But, um, but yeah, I would probably pick Thai food and I, yeah, I just love a good, like traditional Thai curry, green, green curry. Okay. Awesome. Okay. 
Uh, I'd say we had a pretty uh, thorough conversation, Julie. So um, let's end it there. Before I do a quick outro and I get you out uh, of here for today, why don't you share with all of us where people can find you on social media? If somebody resonated with your story and they want to reach out to you, maybe they, they're an ultra runner and they want to, you know, uh, you know, consider you uh, being their coach or something like that. Why don't you kind of give us all the places that people can find you, follow along. And uh, if you have any final thoughts, any final words, anything that you want to leave with us, shout outs. I'm going to turn it over to you. I'll do a quick outro and then we'll wrap it up. So the platform is yours. Yay. Awesome. So yeah, if you're an ultra runner and maybe you've been an ultra runner for a long period of time and you've struggled with feeling issues like getting nauseous or having GI problems while you're running or not feeling like you want to eat or lack of appetite, difficult chewing, uh, feel like you haven't gotten your hydration electrolytes figured out. Um, these are all things that I work on with clients and really help them dial in. So they feel a lot better and perform much better and race faster on race day when it, um, whether that's a 50 K hundred miler. And I do have some clients that do run 200 mile races as well. Um, so that is what I do. And you can find me on Instagram is the best place to find me. Um, it's at ultra dot running dot nutrition, um, is my Instagram handle. And you just send me a direct message. If you, um, want to start up a conversation, uh, over there, if you do not have Instagram, uh, I, you can also send me an email. My email is fuelingultras at gmail.com. And that is another option if you are not on the social medias, but you want to get in touch. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Julie, for uh, sharing your story with us today. Okay. Thank you, Quentin, for having me on. Yeah, you're very welcome. I'm going to do a quick outro and then I'll get you out of here. So uh, all of you who are tuning in to another episode of Curious and Candid, I just want to say, Thank you so very much. I appreciate all of you. I value all of you. And if you guys would like to connect with me, there's a couple places uh, we can connect. Instagram, Curious and Can Podcast, and then email, Curious and Can Podcast at gmail.com. And then a huge favor I'd ask of all of you, if you are finding value in Curious and Candid, if you're enjoying these um, awesome conversations with awesome, awesome, awesome humans, Please uh, subscribe to Curious and Candid on iTunes. Leave us a five-star rating and review. And then if you guys are interested in holistic lifestyle coaching, you can visit my website, which is awakentrainingandnutrition.com. Again, uh, appreciate all of you. And uh, we'll catch you guys on another episode of Curious and Candid.